For the Defense Intelligence Agency, the move to a multi-cloud contract called C2E is all about data interoperability, sharing and disseminating data securely with other intelligence community partners, with other Defense Department agencies, and with foreign allies. For details, at the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference earlier this week, Federal News Network's Jason Miller and I caught up with the DIA Deputy Chief Information Officer, E.P. Matthew. We're working on something known as a capability delivery pipeline. Right. As part of that capability delivery pipeline, you're looking to create a software factory on the, at the unclassified level. So when you create a software factory at the unclassified level, you don't need to get software developers that are TSSEI cleared. Right? You can get them at a much cheaper. It, makes you, it has the ability to acquire right, software engineers at a much cheaper and faster level. But in addition to that, once you build that pipeline, you're designing data standards, security standards, from the very beginning. Typically, we are very application-centric, and so what ends up happening is when you decentralize the building of applications, sometimes security is an afterthought, right? So by doing this and creating these, this pipeline, all those standards are set up, up front and along with the ability to interoper- interoperate amongst multiple clients. And you mentioned that the resulting applications, in fact, the developers might not know that they are working for the IC, that code can then be moved into the classified, and then yes. that's where the data would come from to actually run the app. Yes. So, in an ideal situation, you wanna you will always need classified software developers. But ideally, what you want to do is you want to build as much as possible in the unclassified environment, right? The capability itself, migrate that data, migrate that capability to the high side where you can integrate it with the classified data, right? It, the ability to do that becomes. Um, the ability to leverage this capability becomes very profound. We so the application can check in, but it can't check out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on, on the high side, right? You can check in on the, on the low side, right? You're, 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 right. You're, you're, you're building it on the low side. You're migrating it to the high side, right? And then, yes. A lot of software factories across the DoD. You get a software factory, and you get a software factory. Now you get one. You're using, I imagine, the lessons learned from Air Force, Army, and the like. Yeah, and also our IC partners as well, right? What's going to be unique about our software factory is we're going to be the first 5i software factory. So our 5i partners will be able, to, will also be able to build and integrate into our system. And I think that's key because you do straddle the world of, of intelligence, obviously, in defense, which also leads us to the, we've got to ask about JWCC, the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability. Is that also on your agenda? I know you have C2E. Right, but but there's also JWCC, and right. we could we could continue along the the acronym soup. Yes, so we are working. We meet with our DISA CIO uh, on a biweekly basis, understanding those capabilities. Right, our goal is not to create anything new, but working with our IC partners and our DoD partners to leverage that capability on, on the Nippernet and Cypernet side. And do you expect to use JWCC? I mean, it's it's not a no, we won't, or yes, we will, or where are you in that? Yeah, yeah. So. If the opportunity exists, we will always do that because we have a close partnership with DISA. Uh, we are actually looking to take over DISA's high side environment. So one of the things I, I did not mention in my in, is we're building something known as the company store. Right, the company store is the ability to access and buy TSSEI desktop services in a fee for service manner. So at the Pentagon, this in FY24, we'll take over 7,500 DISA users. That meaning DIA will be providing the desktop services for them. Likewise, one of the things that also we're looking to do in the future is can we adopt DISA services, meaning can DISA provide our desktop for the nipper and sipper, right? We believe we are the best on the TSSEI side, right? Why when you have three, when you maintain three environments, right, you kind of dilute your, your focus. DISA does nipper and sipper better than us. Why not adopt from them? 
And just to be put a finer point on this, the difference here is we have unclassified, classified, and then top secret. Correct. You guys are taking over the sounds like the top secret. Yeah. But you're going to maybe look at DISA for the secret and uh, and unclassified. Right at the desktop level. Desktop right. level. Yep. Perfect. Talk about the providing about 7,500 of those desktops for top secret and above. How many are there roughly? Or I'm not sure you can answer that question if it gets too sensitive. Is no, no, no. It, oh. Yeah, so I, I think what most people don't realize about DIA, CIO is DIA has roughly, uh, the unclassified numbers, you know, roughly 16,000 people. But we also provide the desktops at the TSSCI level for about another 50,000 or so, roughly 50,000 more. So we actually provide the desktop services for, you know, 65, other, yeah. 65, other and, other and parts the, of the IC. Other parts of the IC, right? Um, and so the, a lot of this is the smaller mom-and-pop type. Agencies could be big, but they have a small, they, they need a small footprint of a TSSCI, right? So it's a lot easier for them to come to us, use our company storefront model, adopt it as a fee-for-service. So 7,500 to start, more coming, yeah, as 70, you said. Right, right, 7,500. That's just the, the Pentagon. These right. are people in the Pentagon that use DISA, and DISA is looking to adopt this. All right, and in the JWIX network, you talked about both changing out the hardware, modernizing because you have old switches and routers, et cetera, but also updating the architecture. Yeah. And so can you do the architecture and the hardware simultaneously, or how does that work? We have three levels of effort. So number one is tech refresh, right? Because again, identifying areas of greatest risk uh, and vulnerabilities. Just to is, keep it running. To keep it running, right. To keep that running, right. So we'll modernize that. But as we do that modernization of that, what we're looking also looking to do then is then modernize the architecture. So right now our architecture is about 30 years old. So how do we now modernize it knowing the risk of foreign adversaries, right? How do we modernize and design with failure? How do we design with resiliency and redundancy with so the intent? You, so your architecture would be hardware independent, so to speak? It could be. It could be hardware independent, interoperable, right? Um, yes. Uh, and, and what you'll see in the industry is they're moving to a more software-defined networks. That's, right. the, that's the trend of the industry. And then there's a zero trust element. Of, in all Absolutely. Of and zero trust is part of that new architecture that we have actually factored and, and is funded for. What's the kind of rollout of that uh, modernization effort? Uh, obviously, JWIX has been in the news a little bit late, lately. Right. I, I imagine a lot of what you've been doing has nothing to do with the recent news and the insider challenges. It's really been something that's been ongoing, yeah. the modernization effort. Can I, if I, I know this is not a question you asked, but can I explain that a little bit? Because you you we, should, you should. Because, Good because, idea. We get, yeah, because we get a lot of RFIs, right? Like we get a lot of requests for information and questions on that, about this. So JWIX is the wide area network. And off that wide area network, or think of it as the beltway, like 495, off that 495 beltway, you have a lot of off-ramps that lead to local lanes. So one of the off-ramp would be NGA, one of them would be NSA, one of them would be CIA, right? And one of them would be Air Force, right? And so with regards, I think where you're pointing to is with regards to the unauthorized disclosures, Correct. it would be Air Force that would be responsible for the maintenance and the security components of that local area network, of that local area highway. We are responsible for the wide area network, right? So the example I like to use is, let's say if your Netflix is down, you wouldn't call Verizon and say, hey, why is my Netflix down? Even though you may be accessing Netflix via Verizon. If you can access Gmail, which is a cloud-based email system, if you can access Gmail, you can access other things via your wide area. If you can access YouTube, right? But if you can access Netflix, you wouldn't call 
Verizon and say, hey, why is Netflix down? We would call Netflix, right? So if there's an unauthorized disclosure on Netflix, even though Verizon is the, the, the superhighway that provides that, Netflix would be responsible for that particular piece. So, yeah, so they're responsible for the, the larger eight-lane highway. It's the off-ramps of those each agency. They are responsible for their local area network and the things that happen inside that local area network. E.P. Matthew, Defense Intelligence Agency's Deputy Chief Information Officer, speaking with me and Executive Editor Jason Miller at the ACT-IAC Emerging Tech Conference this week. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you 
recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. 
So, Sulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.